0: Uh, well, if you'll find your way to Psalm 133, Psalm 133, right in the middle of your Bible. So the topic of the sermon this morning uh, actually addresses a what I'll call a chronic spiritual disease, both more harmful and dangerous than COVID-19. And, and ironically, uh, the disease did not, does not spread through close contact, but on the contrary, It thrives when Christians isolate and churches fracture. It has a a range of symptoms from from major depression to that that subtle feeling of of emptiness in the heart. And and many sufferers uh, experience feelings of loneliness. Have you felt lonely lately? Um, A study right before the pandemic um, I think it was January 2020, found that 61% of Americans describe themselves as lonely. Maybe you're a Christian who, who struggles with feeling unloved, um, either by God or, or by other people. If any of these are, are true of you or, or someone you love, you may be suffering from a deficiency of Christian unity. And, and certainly feelings are fickle, uh, but they are also the thermometer of the soul and, and warning of sickness, spiritual sickness. And, and they're I'd call them the barometer of the church, warning of, of a storm coming. We read uh, John 17 earlier. That's uh, a great passage. I don't know of, of anything that delights the heart of Christ more than unity in the church. And and likewise, I don't know of anything that pains the heart of Christ more than disunity in the church. What did Jesus pray for? And this this is his last earthly prayer time. He prayed that we would be one, even as the Father and the Son are one. I just stop and think about that. That's, that's incredible. Um, now our text this morning is Psalm 133, and we're going to see what the, the psalmist David has to say about unity among God's people and how unity in the church is a great blessing, a blessing from God that, that both sets us apart for service to God and to our world as well as a source of great spiritual refreshment. So if you're at Psalm 133, uh, we'll start there in verse 1. A song of ascents of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head that runs down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Uh, So if you're like me growing up, this was one of those psalms that when you forgot to do your devotions, uh, you you quick turn to it before you go to bed, uh, just get a little bit of Bible in. It's nice and short. It's a little bit of a head scratcher. Um, It's about unity, you gather that much, but then what's what's the whole, the beard thing and the oil thing, and um, I heard first heard this psalm taught in college, and ever since then it's been one of my favorite psalms. So it's just a rich, a rich picture, and I hope you have the same, uh, the same view going out of this. I hope you see the good and pleasant things that God wants to teach us through this psalm this morning. So first let's look at how Christian unity is, is delightfully good, starting in verse one. Again, behold how good and pleasant it is when, when brothers, or I'd say siblings, dwell in unity. Christian unity is delightfully good. Uh, but what is Christian unity, right? Um, so we get the concept of unity, it's, it's parts becoming one. It's, uh, it's men, or one from the many unity, but the world, the world has many sources of unity, right? There's, there's kind of cultural unity, uh, there's unity based on, on ethnicity, race, unity based on social status, unity based on vocation, unity based on sports teams, go Tigers, unity based on, you know, the list is endless. The world has many sources of unity. So what makes Christian unity unique? Well, it's founded on our common salvation in Jesus Christ. Did you know that you can have deeper unity with some a Christian who is from a different culture than you? Who's maybe, who maybe is from around the world from you? Who, is, who makes a different amount of money than you? Who doesn't even speak the language you speak? You can have more unity with that Christian than an unbeliever who lives right next door to you who looks a lot like you do? Do you believe that? It's true. And I, uh, whenever I say we're around a dinner table, um, meeting, eating with somebody I'm not as familiar with, or or maybe I'm familiar with, I almost always pray, just thanking God for that common bond, because I can sit down with anybody, and if they're a believer, there's something that joins us together, and that's that's worth thanking God for, and and. Uh, just kind of soaking in around the dinner table or, or anywhere else you are. So that's kind of a, maybe a little idea of what Christian unity is. So what are we looking for when we, when we want to grow up this Christian unity, to, to build it up? And I, I have four categories I, w- I want us to just kind of go through. I think you'll, I think you'll see these make sense. Uh, first, there's, there's gospel unity. So this is the, the core of who we are um this this belief this uh, knowledge that the son of god came down lived a perfect life died in our place to reconcile us to god and rose again and by faith we are joined to him in resurrection for eternal life do you have conversations about that you know is it is it something where you can talk of a believer and and just enjoy one another around those truths and, and maybe, and then, not only those, those truths which sometimes were a little bit cerebral, but you know, this is how the gospel affects my parenting. This is how the gospel affects my my relationships in the dorm room. This is how the gospel affects every area of my life. Grow up into those conversations. So that's gospel unity. And, and the second one is similar. I'm calling it theological unity. So these are just speaking generally about the clear doctrines of Scripture. As unity grows, we should, as Christians, be coming into like-mindedness, on especially these clear doctrines, and then having, having grace and charity over the ones that maybe are less clear. third one I'm calling is, is missional unity. God has called us to something, and we can, we can join together in m- mission, ministry in our community and around the world. And, and Jesus didn't send them, them out one at a time. He sent them out in, in pairs, right? Um, so ministry is not something to do as a, as a lone ranger, it's been said, it's a, it's a group effort. And the fourth one, um, I'm calling relational unity. Like I said earlier, yeah, feelings are fickle, but they are very important. Um, so do you, feel, do you feel connected with your brothers and sisters in Christ? That's important. Building those those relationships, and and when you feel they're when you feel they're fading or distant, go after them, right? Um, so these are four four categories I think we can kind of look at uh, for Christian unity and, and being able to evaluate. Okay, this is where we're at. This is where I'm at, and then and something to work on. Okay, so the the, the verse says unity is good and pleasant. And some translations say it's delightfully good. But there are two concepts here. One's kind of founded on the other. Uh, the first is it's good. Unity in the church is the way God designed it to be. It's right. It's, it's good. And secondly, it's pleasant. And this is, this is what we long for it to be. It's what the human heart craves. It's unity among each other in the church. And so uh, you can think of it as, in sense, unity is a duty, but it's also a delight. It's the, what we're supposed to be working on and, and feeling an obligation to, to build, and but we want to build it because it's delightful to our souls. It's health, healthy to our souls. And so we, we've talked a little bit now about what Christianity is, and and I want to look at following the psalmist, what it's like. So the psalmist, David here, uses two similes to paint a picture of unity. And the first is sacred oil. So this is in verse two. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. That's kind of an interesting picture, isn't it? Unity is like sacred oil, So so what does that mean? Um, So I want to try to paint a little bit of a picture here for you. Um, So if you go back to Leviticus 8, where this actually takes place, where Aaron is anointed as high priest, uh, they use a certain oil, and that oil is actually described in Exodus chapter 30, and it's a very specific blend of fragrant oils. In fact, it could only be used in the priestly ministry. It was forbidden to use it as like a perfume or something like that is a, a designated sacred holy oil, all right. And then, then you have this image, and and Moses anoints Aaron, okay. So I guess we'll say I'm Moses, sure. Um, and we'll say Aaron's here, and we're gonna say he's slightly shorter than me so I can pour oil on his head. I don't know, maybe they kneel down, I don't know. Um, all right, so you have this oil, and and then, you, you know, usually if you're kind of like, Concept of what an anointing is, you know, a little dab of oil on the head there. Maybe it kind of goes down to your eyebrow. All right. So it's on his head, it's it's on his eyebrow now. And and uh, I smell it here, it's a fragrant oil, right? And uh, now it's actually it's on his beard, you know, it's running down, it's down his big bushy beard here. It's coming down the beard, and and then it's on his it's on his collar. Now it's, so it's the front of the head and the beard, and now it's the back of the head, down his collar. And, Onto his robes, and at, at this point, it's a fragrant oil. So it's it's not just me smelling; you're starting to smell this fragrant oil. It's, it's a lot of oil. You get the picture. All right, that's what unity is like, huh? Um, so what does it mean for a priest to be anointed like this? Uh, the Bible has a, a fancy. We think it's a fancy word. It's actually a really good word. Word consecrate. Um, so in. Hebrew, there, there's one word that we get three different words in English. We have the word holy, the word sanctified, and the word consecrated. And you'll see in ESV, it'll go through these and it'll explain a little bit uh, in the footnote. Of, but they all mean the same, basically the same thing. It's setting something apart for God, something set apart for a specific service in, in God in or for God and to to His people. Um, so here Aaron is being consecrated. He's being set apart for a specific ministry, the ministry of, priest, of a priesthood, of, of that mediator between God and people. So Aaron, um, he's going to take on that role, and that's what this oil image is, is reminding us of. So we can say... Um, that Christian unity, it makes us useful to God. It, In a sense, it consecrates the church for useful ministry. And, and step back and think about that. Is a united church more effective than a disunified church? Uh, yeah, obviously it is. Um, so that is, that's, I mean, this metaphor is rich. I'm not going to say that's the only thing to draw out of it. But I think that's really um, the important for us today. All right. So what does that mean for us, though? It means that as a unified church, we're we're a bright light in the community. We're doing the work of the Lord. The gospel is being proclaimed, and, and the least of these, the poor, the orphan, the widow, they're being cared for and loved. All right. So we've looked at how unity is like a sacred anointing oil. We'll come back to this a little bit later. Now I want to look at the second comparison, how unity is like, it's like mountain dew, um, and not the beverage, although I like the beverage. Uh, it's like dew on a mountain, okay? In verse 3, uh, the first half of verse 3, is like the dew of Hermon, I think you actually say Hermon, but I don't know Hebrew, so, which falls on the mountains of Zion. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. All right, so a little geography lesson here. Um, if you're familiar with Israel, if you've been to Israel, then I don't need to explain this probably. But we have two mountains in this verse. We have Mount Hermon, and we have Mount Zion. Okay, Mount Hermon is about four times taller than Mount Zion. Mount Hermon's at the far north of Israel, and it's actually snow-capped most of the year. It's tall enough to be snow-capped most of the year. All right, um, and and seasonally that snow kind of melts. Also, there's a lot of precipitation there. It's about um, it rains at mount hermon three times more days annually than at mount zion so there's a lot more water on mount hermon okay and uh, seasonally that snow kind of melts and all that rain and that dew it comes down into the valleys and it and it refreshes the land um, plants can grow also it's the it's one of the headwaters to the jordan river which if you're familiar with the, the geography of israel that's one of the israel it's the river that is on the, what is that, the eastern border of, of Israel there. So it's, it's supplying the Jordan. Um, whereas Zion, so that's another name for Jerusalem. It's a lot lower mountain. It's also, uh, compared to Mount Hermon, it's, it's, it's a dry, parched land, okay? So the picture here, it's kind of a beautiful picture. It's all this water at Mount Hermon falling on Mount Zion, okay? So it's the idea of a parched land now being um, refreshed with water. All right. So it's like it's like when you're when you're hiking and you forgot your water bottle, right? And say you say you come upon a, a, a mountain stream, and you kind of have that. Maybe there's a little bit of a waterfall, and it's uh, um, you feel that moisture, those uh, those droplets against your face. And, and we'll just say it's, it's clean water, it's drinkable water, and, and now you can drink that water and, and be refreshed. So that's kind of the picture here we're getting of this, this dew from Mount Hermon falling on Mount Zion. Christian unity is like that. It refreshes the church. It refreshes our, and heals our souls. So are you spiritually thirsty and dry inside? Are you, are you weary and discouraged? True Christian unity in the church may very well be the medicine that you need. All right. In these two verses, with these comparisons, um, you get this another theme of this coming down. So you have the oil, it's coming down, and it's coming down. And then you have the water, it's coming down, falling. It's actually the same, the same Hebrew phrase used three times in this little paragraph. So this is important. And, and um, commentators kind of agree on this, that this is trying to remind us of something, that this unity, it's a blessing, and it's a blessing that comes down from God to us. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Unity is a gift from God. Hmm. So we've looked at what Christian unity is and how it's like sacred oil and Mountain Dew. And now let's finish looking at how Christian unity, especially in the context of worship, is a taste of eternity. The last part of verse three here. For there the Lord, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. What is the there? (laughs) What or where is the there? Right? And most obvious referent is it's Mount Zion, okay? But it's more than just a place. It's trying to capture this whole vision of the psalm and this, this word, they didn't call it Jerusalem, they called it Zion. And that's because the word, the name Zion has a whole theological context attached to it, okay? So if you remember, um, we're in a little series on the psalm of sense here. Uh, If you remember kind of what the general sense of the Psalms of Ascent are, it's people returning to Zion in worship to their God. So there's a little debate on on why they're returning, if they're coming back from the Babylonian captivity. Um, There's a few other theories there. If it's just the the seasonal uh, holidays they're coming up to Jerusalem for. Uh, But the idea is to return to Zion, to worship God, and Zion, this is the place where God comes down and where people come up to him. This is where the temple is. This is where the, the priestly ministry was. So this is, That's the idea of it's there God has commanded the blessing. That whole rich theological context there. All right. He commanded the blessing. Isn't that kind of weird? I didn't just say he blessed it or he blessed them there says, commanded the blessing. And I believe he, the psalmist, David, chose that because he's quoting um, a phrase that's only used two or three other times in the Old Testament. He's using that to draw our attention back uh, to Deuteronomy, chapter 28, where God describes the blessing he will put upon his obedient people. And those, this includes material prosperity, Numerous children, victory over enemies, peace, all coming together to paint a picture of a unified people, guarded and prospered, under the faithful rule of the God they worship as one. So let's just listen to the part of this. The Lord will command the blessing on you, in your barns and in all that you undertake. He will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people, holy to himself, as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in His ways, and that's just a little snippet. Go back and read that. It's such a beautiful picture. It's about half a chapter long. So we need to be a little bit careful here to know what um, what era or what uh, what time of salvation history we are in. Um, so this was before the cross. This was. Uh, this was basically one of the, this was the first book of the Bible written, so the Pentateuch, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So the fifth book of the Bible, the first, first uh, book compilation written. Um, so we don't want to fall into this prosperity type gospel. Uh, and a lot of people, a lot of preachers do. They, they go back to these and say, name it, claim it, this is us today. Um, no, <laughs> that's, that's not what the New Testament teaches. Um, but don't lose the beauty of what it's trying to communicate to us today. Uh, God's people, from the time of Moses to when when David wrote this psalm, to to the return from Babylon, to to the time of Jesus and and beyond, even to today, God's people have tasted this picture from one degree to another, but never fully. And yet our hearts, even this morning, sing in, in unison, Longing with saints from ages past for a day when when, yes, none of us worry about money or food or clothing. We have no worry about war or terror or injustice of of discrimination, no worries about pandemics and death. So we long for this this worry-free life, it's true. And yet, the psalmist is saying, the essence of our longing is for for the picture of revelation 7 worshiping around the throne of our god and savior in unified worship so after this i looked and behold Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. 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 Saints, that is life forevermore. That picture. And this image is most clearly seen when the church gathers to worship. Wow. That's pretty cool. Well, we made it to the end of the psalm. And, but I want now to take a little step back and briefly look at, at two people in this psalm. So there's David the king and Aaron the high priest. So what is David doing here? Uh, it's attributed to him. He's, what is the psalm inviting us to? David the king is inviting us into this worship at Zion, this communion with, between God and man. And Aaron, Aaron is paving the way. He is, if you go back to that Leviticus, he's he's consecrated, and what's the first thing he does? He consecrates the people. Jesus is the fulfillment of both these roles. He's welcoming us into unified worship and is the one who made it possible. He made the sacrifice to cover our sins through his own death. If your faith is not in Jesus this morning, so our unbelieving friend, I hope you're drawn to the picture of a loving unified church that actually knows God. The true King Jesus wants to welcome you into his community. He has made it possible by dying in your place as our great high priest. So trust him today. Make him the king of your life and then come, tell us about it. We'll enjoy that together with you. That gospel truth, right, we talked about earlier. That conversation. Um, All right, so lack of Christian unity. It's widespread in our world. We must be committed to making unity priority. Unity in the church is one of Jesus' greatest priorities. And so uh, here are a few just guiding thoughts on identifying, identifying disunity and cultivating unity, all right? So the first one, just sit back and evaluate. Sometimes we get so rope caught up in life that we can't sit back and just, you know, is there unity, do I see unity? Um, is it unity in, in gospel doctrine? Is it unity in, in gospel mission? And then the next one, uh, just, just let your heart be a barometer, you know? Feelings were given for a reason. And often they are are some of the first signs that there is a lack. So like I said kind of at the beginning, uh, is there a loneliness? Is there a a longing that's meant to be fulfilled by the church in your heart? Or do you see it in your brothers and sisters? Um, Next one, so now we need to cultivate unity, right? How do we do this? Well, we need to live in the word. What did Jesus pray in in the the call to worship? He said, sanctify or consecrate them by your truth. Your word is truth. God's word really does need to be the foundation for our unity. Second one is pray for Christian unity. So John 17, what's Jesus do? He prays for Christian unity. and, And who are we not to if our Lord did? So make that part of your daily prayer routine. Pray for unity in the church, both here at Clemson and the churches around Clemson and in the world. All right, and then pursue unity. So I just have seven, run through this really quick, ways, practical ways you can pursue unity. Uh, First, this is the ministry of showing up, (laughs) right? It's pretty hard to be unified when you're not with people. Um, So, I mean, we've got a number of things here. Come to them, but don't just come to come. Ideally, if you need to and you're tired and you work, say you work nights or something, and you just are basically almost dead, and you're still gonna come, do it, that's great. Um, (laughs) See that hand. Um, But if you can, come to build unity, right? All right, Uh, second one, I usually try to to fit hospitality into my sermons if I can, just because it's it's a meaningful one to my wife and I. However, it's especially pertinent in the topic of unity. I don't know if there is, well, I'm not gonna say this, but it's one of the main ways the church can build unity. And we see this in scripture too, like how many times are people gathering around meals? Um, You know, have people over. They don't really, they actually don't care if your house is clean, did you know that? (laughs) Um, Have people around your table. Um, Third one, do missions in teams. don't be the, 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 lone, the lone missionary in, in your community. Go out and go out in pairs and, and personal invites. Now Slack is great, um, but there's something about a personal invite. Say, hey, will you come and do this with me for the sake of Jesus Christ? Um, there's something really rewarding in being offered that invitation. And, and then the flip side, uh, accept the invitation, right? <laughs> um, pursue right doctrine in study and discussion. So never, never go into theological discussions to win or to wield a theological bat. That's just, that does the exact opposite. And um, <laughs> especially in the world, when people hear the word theology, often the first thing I think of, division, theology, division, that's not God's plan. That's not what theology is for. It's actually it's supposed to unite the church, especially around those central doctrines. Um, so, pursue those conversations, but do them to, to edify your siblings in Christ and, and to please Christ Himself. Uh, another one work to distinguish gospel culture from Christian culture. And this is especially important if you want diversity <laughs> in your church. Um, because there are, there are some things that we just take for granted. Like, well, if it's part of my Christian culture, like the Bible Belt culture, it must be in the Bible. Uh, that's, not, that's often not the case. <laughs> so learn at differentiating. Is this something about my life that actually flows out of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, and my faith in him? Is it something that flows out of that, or is it not out of that? And is one of those kind of gray areas that maybe I'm called to, to lay down, at least for a season? Um, work at distinguishing gospel culture from, from Christian culture. Um, and then, desi- desire to speak well of fellow believers. Write <laughs> out gossip. Root out slander, whether it's true or not. Um, speak well. Um, we can be too quick to attribute views and actions to unbiblical thinking when, like I, got, like I was saying with the gospel culture thing, they're actually not, they're not thinking unbiblically. You just haven't talked to them. You haven't understood them. You haven't been able to nuance that discussion. Speak well of one another. And then last, just keep God's vision vision for Christian unity in front of you. Um, Make it your heart's greatest longing to love that Christian unity. Because there's nothing else like it in this world that can satisfy the Christian heart. And if you don't believe that, you might not have experienced it to the extent you're supposed to. Some have called Jesus' prayer for unity in the church the greatest unanswered prayer. May that never again be true of us. Okay? May we be united people in Christ. All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're grateful for the unity you have given us as a blessing. God, use us. May this this unity um, prepare us for service and refresh our souls to your glory and to our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.